Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We're happy to have you this evening, and we're really excited to bring our special guest with the, our present our special guest <laughs> to you tonight. That is uh, meteorologist Brian Norcross, and I'm sure if you've watched the Weather Channel or followed Tropical Meteorology, you have heard Brian's name. And uh, Brian is a big, um, big contributor to Tropical Meteorology and hurricanes. And so I'm sure. Some point tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about hurricanes, but other things. So uh, throughout the show, so Brian, uh, welcome to the show. We're we're happy to have you. And since you're a first time guest, we'll give you the kind of like the first time guest uh, question. We'd like to know a little bit about how uh, how you got into the weather world. I mean, was there a certain event or a certain meteorologist that kind of just really intrigued you to want to pursue this? Uh, what, what's your story like? Well, Scotty, I'm um, I I can almost certainly say totally different than every meteorologist that you, you're going to have on here. I got into doing the weather on TV. Not that I wasn't a little bit interested in it. When I started in TV, um, I was an engineer. And th th I remember when we got our, first, our radar at the TV station, I worked at Channel 11 in Atlanta as an engineer. And, and I would go in there and play with the radar. And that's when you had the crank, you know, to <laughs> raise the angle and, and all, you know, you kind of did your own uh, sections and all this uh, kind of manual stuff that we did back then. But it was a big deal to have, you know, like a, essentially a WSR 87 um, or WSR 57, I'm sorry, uh, or maybe by that time a WSR 74 in, in the TV station. Anyway, it was a full scale thing. Anyway, so I was kind of intrigued with that. But the way I got into weather, I was a math and physics guy as an undergraduate. And then I had this circuitous route through television. And I ended up being the news director of the ABC affiliate in Louisville, which back then was WLKY. They've switched affiliations there now. And my weather lady, who was this super talented weather presenter kind of lady, uh, decided she was going to leave and pursue a career in country music. So I started offering jobs to meteorologists. I decided we needed a meteorologist because the other two stations had meteorologists. And I kept offering more and more and more money to the point that I was offering a lot more money than I was making and telling them how easy the job was going to be and how much we were going to support them and, and how they can make extra money doing radio. And I always loved radio. And, and I thought, I ought to be able to do this. So... I ended up quitting that job, went back to Florida State, got a master's, and, and then went into the weather business. And while I was at Florida State, I got hired at the local ABC station in Tallahassee. So I was doing the weather there. And then as soon as I finished, CNN started. So uh, I ended up going to CNN. It was the original weekend uh, weather person on CNN when, uh, when it started up. So And then... It, Led from there to San Francisco to Atlanta and eventually to Miami. So I want to I want to go into the CNN thing. I think that's interesting. So CNN, known as a news network, but uh, presenting weather, maybe not mm -hmm. so much this day and time as it was back then. But uh, from working at a local station in Tallahassee to going to CNN, how how was that? I mean, I'm sure that was a big jump. Well, it, it was uh, in a way. Well, by the way, at that time, this is at the very beginning of CNN. We called it Chicken Noodle News. I mean, it was it was, you know, a startup operation, but Ted had put everything he had into it. And I mean, I Ted was a complicated guy <laughs> to work for, but you have to give him so much credit. I mean, he really rolled the dice in his career 
more than once with his money. And CNN was one of those times. And they hired very good people. But starting in uh, a news network that nobody had ever done before from scratch, uh, you know, Reese Schoenfeld, they hired as a president and a guy named Sam Zellman uh, was in charge of the talent and, and hired me. Uh, so it was it was an experience because everything was new, every process, every everything. So the first day I walk in the in the building there to actually do it. And of course, I'm like, what, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the executive producer comes running over to me and says, oh, you're finally here. You're finally here. And I said, well, I'm just here. I'm here two hours early to figure this out and figure out how we're going to do it. And he said, I need you on the set right now because they are venting Three Mile Island. Well, Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania was a nuclear accident. And uh, it had happened, I don't know, whether it was a week or two before, whatever it was. And they were going to vent the reactor. So it was all about which way was the radioactive cloud going to go. And this is in 1980. Uh, and, and I'm like, okay, where do I get the data here? You know, this is before we had, you know, you could, before your phones or before there was really the internet, actually. Anyway, it was, uh, it was, it was quite a time. It was a real ride there, uh, you know, as CNN was getting started. So you mentioned that uh, when you were offering that job to other meteorologists, <laughs> at the time you thought it was an easy job that you were, you were giving away. Did you find the process jarring when you went back to school and realized that perhaps it wasn't quite as easy uh, as you thought, first thought? Well, it was the, the mechanics of the job that, that at that time were pretty easy because mm. um, like at the TV station, we didn't have at that time a green screen. You had these maps and you put stuff up on the map and you stand in front of the map. Right. And, you know, and the maps came over. I don't know if you guys uh, are <laughs> you know, old enough to remember this, but but they had these machines like a, a Difax machine. Before that, there was a Nafax machine that these these kind of print, it was a slow printer, thermal printer that would print out the map. So that was what you used. And then you had some text products that you got off the wire that would kind of describe the weather. And, you know, and you got forecasts from the local National Weather Service office and whatnot. And, and we had a radar at this TV station in Louisville, but the radar was from World War II. And it was this black and white radar that we had a camera mounted over top of and a piece of cellophane that you'd put over it for the map. I mean, it was, and all you saw were these sort of gray blobs where, you know, the, the, the showers were or whatever. I mean, there was no VIP levels or anything, you know, like that. Um, uh, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I didn't do the weather there, but that was, we had that tool that other stations didn't have actually. So it was kind of, kind of fascinating uh, to do it anyway, but the thing was that there there wasn't you know you didn't have the resources the technical resources and to uh, you were very limited on data and so you made your forecasts based on what you had uh, and and you didn't have a lot of graphics you didn't have a graphics machine you know you didn't have any of that so uh, you know there wasn't it, it wasn't a big cumbersome thing like you didn't have to come in hours and hours before. You, uh, you know, you're going to be on TV to put together all the graphics and the animations and all that stuff you have to do now, now let alone social media and everything else. How has that, what's that been like for you? you? You started before social media and now you're living in the world of social media, or social mediaologists. Uh, we all do. What's your thoughts on that? Is that has social media been a good thing or a, a negative thing? Well, I, I mean, I don't tend to think of it in, in either of those terms. Uh, you know, it is a thing. 
and <laughs> you have to deal with it. Right. I mean, I, but I um, I mean, I think that the biggest problem we have today in, in weather world is that we can't communicate with people anymore. And, you know, compared to like in what I you know, my big event in my life was Hurricane Andrew. Well, that couldn't be done anymore because in Hurricane Andrew it was 1992. You know, you didn't have the Internet. You didn't have cell phones. Uh, you had mobile phones, sort of, but barely. There were these big bricky things. So, you know, when people, when a hurricane was coming and people found out, oh, crap, a hurricane is coming. What did they do? They turned on the TV. Well, everybody turned on the TV. So you didn't have trouble with this neighbor getting a different message than that one. You know, I mean, you just didn't have this problem of a multitude of voices that, could be basically the same, but in other ways different, you know, multiple different graphics of the same forecast, which happens all the time now, right? And not to mention that on the phone, you know, there's just crap and and the for, and there's a lot of crap that's not accurate, but then there's also forecasts that are boiled down to icons. Well, we didn't have that problem in 1992. When when people want to know the forecast, they turn on the television and you could explain the forecast. Right. You had, you know, you, there was explanation as part of the, the process. So, you know, it's not just social media uh, that that has diluted our ability to communicate these days. Uh, it's part of it. But the other part is that, you know, the phone is the number one communications device and and the people that have the way it's evolved is the big companies that they all do the same thing and they all make these little tombstones. And that's what people have come to expect for 10 days in the future. Like you could even begin to forecast 10 days in the future, but we do it anyway. And we put our meteorology stamp on that and say, here's the forecast from your local superstar meteorologist. And then people look at the phone and they go, well, that wasn't right. It didn't used to be a problem because if you couldn't forecast that you, you and you would explain that, you know, like we don't know where this this low pressure is going. So we're just going to be ready for the possibility of a rain snow mix here. But the odds, uh, you know, it's just a very uncertain thing. Well, but when you look on your phone, it says rain snow mix like that's 100 percent. Right. So so the presentation systems we have today don't really match our level of confidence and 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 the what would be involved in a real explanation of the forecast. And so since you have that divergence today, we really don't communicate, I don't think, anywhere near as well as we used to. I know you, you, you've you went through the career TV from, from pre-social media to, to now, what Evan's talking about, but what do you think, what would your words of, of advice be to future broadcast meteorologists who are dealing with trying to give them the information uh, on on a two three minute weather hit versus trying to do it on social media. I mean that that's a hard act to balance. So, what would your advice be to future broadcast meteorologists in that aspect? Well, and there's a third uh, component to it, which actually it actually supersedes both social media and broadcast today, and that's the mobile phone and the weather app on the mobile phone. In most cities, if you go out and do research and say what is your primary source of weather information, it's the Weather Channel app. As crappy as that app is, it's the Weather Channel app that's there. People will say is the number one source. Now that doesn't mean that that they don't have trusted people on television, but they wake up in the morning and they look at that, and usually that app is up here, and then the local TV station apps 
are down here somewhere, usually. So that's a problem. It's not because their forecasts are bad, but their forecasts aren't curated. So sometimes they are bad. And the thing is, they're making forecasts well into the future and deterministic forecasts for uncertain situations. So, so that's a problem. So what, what I try to always do, and I, I do this, I don't, you know, I don't do little tweets about little facts like, oh, look at the new model and look at this. And I don't do that. Um, you know, I write a, a post when there are things going on in the tropics and I explain. And sometimes I'll say, you know, you might have looked at your weather app and have seen that there's a possibility of a storm five or six days now. Let me explain to you what that's telling you. Yes, of course there is. But there's also, this is a, there's a huge error. It's plus or minus 500 miles. It's, blah, 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 you know, and, and so I try and convey what people should be thinking about the storm at this point, right? So that's really, uh, and that this is what I tell broadcasters, people that want to go into broadcasting. It's not about forecasting the weather in advance. Yeah, it's forecasting the weather tomorrow, place at times you have certainty. It's not forecasting the weather five days from now, seven days from now, whatever. But if, if there is a potential disruptive weather event in the period that you're forecasting, you have to address that. And what you really want to do is try and help people know how to think about it. Don't try and forecast this, but how do we think about this right now? You know, and very often it's something like, you know, the worst case we're seeing is that this is actually going to be ice to snow. But that's that's kind of at the end of the set of possibilities. We have these major possibilities. And tomorrow we're going to address exactly this and see if we can narrow that. And, and what I've found is if you tell people, OK, here's what we know, like we know that there is a threat of some kind of winter storm five or seven days from now. What don't we know? We don't know the exact track and we don't know where it's going. When are we going to know more? We're going to talk about it tomorrow. We'll have an update later tonight, whatever. So, you know, what do we know? Don't we know? And when will we know more? If that's the conversation about uncertain events, I found that that people are satisfied with that. And they they, they don't get that on their phone, right? They get just a kind of middle ground somewhere on their phone. Um, I want to talk about your tropical interests. How, how did you get interested in, in hurricanes and tropical meteorology? And also want to kind of piggyback that off of, you was the national uh, hurricane specialist for the Weather Channel for a, a good amount of time. So uh, maybe uh, talk about your tropical interests and, and your time at the Weather Channel. So the way I, uh, I mean, I, I came to Miami in 1983. And so if you come to Miami, you have to you know, pay some attention to tropical weather. Although in the 80s, we didn't have hurricanes. You know, hurricanes look, took two decades off for the most part, the 70s and the 80s. And in Miami in the 80s, people didn't, you know, hurricane season came, nobody really batted an eye. It wasn't a thing. And, um, but I was doing, uh, eventually, in, starting in 84, I was uh, given this assignment at the, on the 530 News to do this program that I had actually created a few years before, and I gave it to the news director as a pitch called Neighborhood Weather. And the idea of Neighborhood Weather was to go out to a different location every day and do a live weather show, but I would tell a story 
And quite often the story was about the history of the location, something that happened there 65 years ago, and I'd show a picture and whatnot. Well, in developing those stories, I spent a lot of time at the History Museum in downtown Miami. And through that process, and, and I read books about the history of Miami, through that process, I learned how many hurricanes that hit Miami. And I thought, holy crap, if this ever starts again, uh, like it did in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and into the first half of the 60s, that, I mean, people aren't going to know what hit them. And then I thought, boy, if I'm ever chief meteorologist here uh, and we start having hurricanes like that, people are going to look at me and, and go, okay, what do we do now? And I'm like, I don't know. Nobody's paying attention to hurricanes around here. So in uh, the end of 89 and 1990, I was hired as chief meteorologist at the NBC station uh, in Miami. And, uh, and I said, let's be the hurricane station. Let's freaking learn what we need to learn to do that. And we spent two and a half years asking every question of everybody that I knew to ask questions of from the hurricane center to emergency management, to the school board, to the coast guard, to everybody in the three South Florida counties, Miami-Dade, Broward, and, and uh, down in the Keys. And, and then we had Hurricane Andrew. And we had this hellacious hurricane. And we had put in all kinds of backup systems. And I designed all variety of things. I wrote a book about this uh, for the 25th anniversary of it, about you know the kind of communications philosophy I developed over, the, over that time, thinking about what would happen if I... Uh, you know, I were chief meteorologist in the hurricane. Well, you know, I better know something about South Florida. I better know something about hurricane plans. I better know something about hurricanes. And then this unbelievable event happened. And I have, you know, and we had done the work to do it and then to survive uh, through it. So, so after Andrew, my life was really all about hurricanes. Um, for the two years after Andrew, seven days a week, all day, every day, it was about Andrew, and uh, I was on committees appointed by the governor, and and I'd fly to New York and do an interview and come back and fly to L.A. and do the weather from L.A. to be interviewed there, and all kinds of things for years after that. And through that process, through Andrew, I realized uh, that there was so much I didn't know and so much to learn from Hurricane Andrew. Um, I mean, Andrew was the most important hurricane of modern time, because the, the systems we use today uh, really came out of Hurricane Andrew, the emergency management systems, FEMA, uh, the insurance uh, systems, the building codes, uh, all that came out of uh, Hurricane Andrew. And, and so there were a lot of changes that went on in the 90s. So that's how I became a hurricane uh, person. And in 2010, the Weather Channel asked me to come and and uh, be uh, a hurricane guy, and uh, and be the you know hurricane specialist, and and uh, so I did that for for uh, eight years. How about telling us some of the uh, more memorable storms you've experienced, uh, other than Andrew, during your time? Like you've been in Florida, you've been in Kentucky, you've been in Atlanta, and maybe some other places I, I've forgotten about. So, yeah. uh, tell us uh, about your your biggest storm memories. Okay, well, let me tell you about uh, my my first day. In Louisville. 
So I actually, I was working in Denver and I was a producer in Denver. And then they hired me, the same company was moving me to Louisville to run the news department. And so, uh, but the Broncos were going to play in the Super Bowl. So I couldn't leave Denver because I had to produce the Super Bowl coverage because they sent the anchors to, to Dallas where the, the game was going to be played and so forth. So I, I flew to Louisville to get an apartment for my new job because I was going to, I wanted to move as soon as I could, but, but I, I was going to have to come back to Denver for the Super Bowl. And so I get to Louisville, I go out and look for an apartment and I kind of found one, it was okay. And I'm staying in a hotel down the street from the TV station and uh, the phone rings at five o'clock in the morning and it's the assignment editor is the guy in the news department that tells the reporters and photographers where to go to cover the news. Calls me and says, Brian, have you looked out the window? I said, looked out the window. It's, hello, it's five o'clock in the morning. I look out and I mean, and I can't even hardly see out the window for the snow that's drifted up over the windows and everything. And he says, uh, I don't think I can get out of here. You're close to the TV station. Maybe you should go down there and just see what's going on because somebody needs to be there. So I got in the car, which was this huge Ford LTD and plowed my way down to the TV station and beating on the back door. And there were two engineers that had kept the TV station on the air overnight. And I said, hey, I'm the new news director. <laughs> they didn't have any idea who I was. But they let me in, and, and I'd only been in there once when I interviewed for the job. I walked through the newsroom and said hello to a couple of people and went to the, the boss's office and, for the interview. But I found my way into the – and I turned on the lights and kind of turned things on in the news department and uh, got the printers going. And, I mean, it was just like roads closed, highways closed, snow, snow blah, 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 all this stuff printing out. And, um, and I'm looking at the clock. And I'm going, Jesus, where are the, where's the morning anchor? What's going on here, you know? And, and so, and at that time, uh, there was no morning, local morning news, only the, the what are called the cut-ins in Good Morning America for, at 725, 755, 825, and 855. But I'm looking at the clock at seven o'clock and there's nobody coming in. And I'm, I go to the engineers and I said, you know, so what happens here in the morning? Who, who's, who's supposed to be? Here? Oh, yeah, no, Fran should be here. I, she's not here. No, she's not here. So it gets to be 7.15 and, and no, Fran. And I so I went back to him. I said, if, if, can we aim the cameras at the desk? And, and so anyway, I ended up going on and anchoring the news in, in this city that I didn't have any idea, you know, about the, the geography of it, Louisville. Nothing. I just had this stack of, of uh, wire copy. And one anchor guy that I had met was a guy named Dan Lewis, who was the weekend anchor. And he, uh, he ended up being a star and, and a big game guy in Seattle years later. And uh, so I found his phone number and I called him on the phone. I said, Dan, it's Brian, you know, the new news director. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to interview you on the phone just a minute. Look outside because I'm going to ask you where you are and what, what the storm is like where you are. And he's what? He's what? He's like, what? What are you talking about? And so no, just go with me. Go with me here because we're going to go on TV here in a second. So anyway, that was, that was my first ever 
big weather event. And we were the only station on the air with coverage of the storm that morning because nobody could get to the other TV stations either. Uh, and anyway, it ended up being a big thing and it really put the TV station on the map and uh, and also kind of elevated me in the with because I was I was 27 years old uh, as like, you know, who's this guy that's just coming in here like this? What's something that's uh, somebody that's visiting Miami is a, a must do when you're down there? This is this is such an unusual place. I mean, there is no place like Miami. You know, in the United States, we have uh, lots of wonderful cities, including Two of my favorite cities in the Carolinas, in Raleigh and Charlotte, as, as being you know good sized cities. I had a, a home for ten years in Murphy, North Carolina, kind of the opposite of a major city, but it was great. I loved it. But in the big cities in the U.S., you know, yeah, we have this handful of really unique places in New York and New Orleans and San Francisco, and and Miami is one of them. I mean, Los Angeles, obviously, but really, there is no place like Miami on all different kind of levels. So uh, one level is just culturally, it's the only major city that there is no dominant culture. Now, every place else in the US was a lot of, of uh, influx of immigrants from all over the world, but it runs on Anglo-American culture. Miami does not. Miami does, really has no dominant culture and it's a, it is a, a, a evidence that People from all these different cultures that have different ways of doing business and all can make an incredibly um, explosive city in terms of growth. But but from a physical standpoint, um, Miami is uh, is unique in big cities in that the ground here is porous. So as the sea level rises, you can't put up a wall and keep the water out because the water will just go through the ground and under the wall. So this isn't a, a place where you can build seawalls uh, against sea level rise. There really is nothing to do here except for raise the land. So my neighborhood here in Miami Beach is the first neighborhood to be raised for sea level rise. The road out there is raised about three feet and they put in a complicated pumping and cistern system to deal with the rainfall. It works great, but it's very complicated compared to the old uh, just gravity drainage system that ended up not working. And it would flood every time it was heavy rain at high tide during the peak tide seasons, let alone if there was a uh, some kind of a storm surge or even a strong easterly wind. So, so um, you know, this city is, you know, is a problematic place because it's going to have to essentially raise itself over the decades here as the uh, waters rise. But having said that, they are building high-rise buildings like there is no tomorrow. I mean, buildings of 60 floors and taller, it's just unbelievable. It's stunning to go downtown and, uh, and drive through and walk through the canyons now that feel like something between Hong Kong and a Batman set, you know, or... You feel like you feel like you're in some kind of movie. It is so stunningly surprising to uh, to see in the time that I've been here, and I had a view of downtown. I may have pictures out my my um, off my balcony, you know, with a handful of high rise buildings, 
And now it's, it looks like Hong Kong over there. It's, it's like dense and there are more and more and more buildings in the 60 to 100 story range going up all the time. It's just unbelievable, you know, and, and, and then the condos, they're trying to outdo one another. So like the Porsche Tower, which is sitting on the beach north of here, up in a place called Sunday Isles Beach, north of Miami Beach, uh, there you take your car up to your apartment, 30, 40, 50 floors, so you don't have to park it in the garage at the ground. I mean, just crazy, crazy, crazy stuff in, in the place in the United States that is most likely to have a hurricane. and is the most threatened in terms of major cities by sea level rise. All right. Well, Brian, uh, we certainly appreciate uh, you joining us tonight. If our followers and uh, listeners of the podcast want to follow you on social media, how can they do that? Well, on Twitter, uh, it's just at B Norcross. Uh, and you'll see there that one of my projects, um, Frank asked me about what I do. One of my projects I didn't mention is hurricaneintel.com. But the main way that most people interact with that is on Twitter. So I two Twitter accounts, but they both put it out. So at B Norcross. And what I did there was created this automatic system to parse the Hurricane Center advisories. It takes part of the public advisory and part of the um, forecast advisory and part of the discussion and, and some graphics and puts them all together. And then it it does things like it takes the kilometers per hour out and it converts knots to miles per hour. And so it makes all the bulletins more readable automatically. Um, so anyway, all that shows up either at, at B Norcross on Twitter or on hurricaneintel.com. And then on, on Facebook, uh, it's facebook.com slash Brian Norcross weather, Brian with a Y, Brian Norcross weather. And uh, there, uh, are the posts that I do uh, every day that there's something going on in, in the tropics worth talking about. Uh, it's actually this past hurricane season and the one before it was insane. I was, you know, I was doing something seven days a week for months. It seemed like, but um, you know, normally I just do it when there's something actually of uh, interest going on. Well, Brian, we appreciate your time. We hope uh, this upcoming tropical season's not too busy for you. But yeah, uh, me too. <laughs> we uh, we wish you all the best, and uh, thank you all for watching the Carolina Weather Group. We'll talk to you real soon.